Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers who sit around drinking tasty beverages and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are Chaz and Karen Brinchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 120, Interview with Brenda Clough. Welcome, Brenda. Hi, how are you? We are so good. It's excellent to have you. I mean, Chaz and Karen have known you forever. I met you at FogCon a few years ago when you were wearing this amazing leather coat. I remember that. And uh, I'm so sad that FogCon is not running. Well, I think it did run this year, but I could not come down to attend it. But I'm hoping to come later on. Uh, Live, and I believe they're going to stick with virtual just for security because... Thank you, San Francisco, for being health conscious. But at least I think the online and Zoom conferences keep us all in touch with each other. Yes, they do for now. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that Falcon is doing that. But I miss it very, very much. So, Brenda, you have, as near as I can tell, something really exciting that you've been doing here in 2021 with all of your novels. Tell us about the really cool serial project that you've been releasing. This is, this is new. Brenda's an amazing novelist. Well, I'm best known for writing science fiction and fantasy, but my uh, muse took a left turn about four or five years ago, and I began writing a series of Victorian thrillers. And all of these are essentially the sequel to The Woman White by Wilkie Collins, a famous proto-feminist novel and also the uh, one of the founding uh, books of the thriller genre. And at that moment, the major one of the major characters in that novel was Miss Marianne Halcombe, the sister of the heroine. And she kicks some fairly serious ass <laughs> in the book. And mysteriously, I don't understand it. Wilkie Collins never wrote a sequel. There clearly was market for it because the actual novel itself was a bestseller in its period. There were people ripping it off and there were people putting it on stage. And so it was clearly a hit. Why did he not write sequels? Clearly something had to be done. And so I took it in hand and I wrote 11 novels, 11. <laughs> and then it, since I had 11 of them, I decided to to do a cute marketing thing and put one a month out in the month, in the year 2021. So there is the first one came out in January and we're about three quarters of the way in. And, and the last one's scheduled to come out in November. And this allows everybody to sort of binge read the whole thing. And it should be interesting to see how that works out in hopes that it will be, uh, it'll be popular. It is sort of not like anything else that's out at this moment. I don't think. I was going to say, I like this whole idea of serial re- releases again. I saw it in novella forms for like Sean and McGuire's indexing and a few others have been doing it, but I like it done on the novel stage. And especially that it's not, I mean, I've seen like the Shifter romance novel series that Zoe Chant Collective is doing, but to have one that one author is did, first of all, 11 novels. Holy crap, lady, that's amazing. <laughs> but, but secondly, I do like this. Hey, there's a new one. Hey, there's a new one. Because I, I don't know about anybody else, but during lockdown, I have been binge reading everything. And so I think this has been great. Have, yeah, have the um, sales reflected enthusiasm for this? I haven't the faintest idea. One of the things I'm not is I'm not a marketer. I don't even look at the statistics, but I'm counting on people to buy them. And I will say, oh, a particularly evil thing. The first one is free. Like many entry-level drugs, 
You can go over to bookviewcafe.com and get it for free forever. It's perma-free. And then if you're hooked, there's 10 more in the (laughs) pipeline. So are they all electronic or do you have hard copy versions or? um... Well, because I was doing 11 of them, it was like so brutal as Chaz can tell you. And so I couldn't face the idea of pushing them out in paper format. I figured I would push them all out in uh, ebook form. And then what we're going to do is there's going to be the Kindle debut probably next year when they can all come out in one horrible effort. And then after that, I may push through into the paper edition. I just couldn't uh, doing 11 of them one a month as just about uh, it's just barely doable, but I don't think I could do 11 electronic and paper at the same time. I think it would kill me. How long did it take you to write 11 freaking books, even with a passion for the subject? Well, it takes longer than a month. I'll tell you that. That's why I had to have them all lined up first so that all I needed to focus now on was the ebook edition and the layout and all of this kind of stuff. I would say that I've been writing roughly, uh, it takes about nine or 10 months to actually write one beginning to end. And then that means that I've been working on them. Well, that's not fair to say. I did a calculation the other day. And in the past decade, I have written 14 novels. So I'm just kind of hot, sort of hot at this moment. Wow, that's that's definitely, that's more than one a year. Yes, I know, that's about right. I could do about more than one a year. Do you do word counts for yourself? Or how do you keep yourself on task for all that? I don't know. Mm. I really, truly do not know. I just... Okay just sort of sit down and do it. As long as I can think of something to happen, we can do it. And I will say that the form of these books has helped to do that because they've got a reasonably rigid format. It starts in, it starts mundane and we start getting up more and more. Uh, Chaz can testify to this. They get more and more crazy as you get uh, into the work. And then the next volume, we begin, begin again with relatively mundane stuff before things begin to go around the corner. A most dangerous woman, everybody will put a link on the thing to it. <laughs> yeah, the first one is titled Marion Halcombe, and you can find it on Bookview Cafe. So is it all about Marion Halcombe, or does she um, gather together a merry band of very, you know, as they go along to help her, you know, fight crime or whatever? Is it just her as the Main. Well, she has, uh, you have to have your team, you know, Batman needs Robin, you know, uh, James Bond needs Q and so forth. So he, she has one of the things I wanted to do, because all of these things are set relatively rigidly in the 1860s and 70s and 80s, quite uh, tightly historical. And so she can only operate within her society as it was then. And it is so she had to have a husband because it's very difficult at that period for an unmarried lady to do anything. And if you're having a husband gives you immediately a rich fields of endeavor, I would say that her first husband, Theo is kidnapped. Not once, not twice, but at least three times. And then the, uh, when you're married, he had children from his previous wife and there are more children over here and there's political stuff over there. And uh, so simply uh, by, complicating her life a little bit a lot of stuff goes on i would say that in fairness uh, uh marion does not actually go and seek adventure the way uh let us say james bond does she is allegedly sitting there being a nice victorian mother and housewife and stuff just sort of kind of happens and uh and then when she does naturally she has to address it and and then hijinks ensue yes they do 
Excellent. How did you approach this differently than you have some of your past? Like, I love your Hell Like a God series um, that came out, which is very, I don't know, it's kind of a crossover, a little bit sci-fi, a little bit fantasy, both. But how do you approach something that was the historical? Did you do a ton of research rather than world building? Give me a hint of how you went and approached it. I well, I'm annoyingly well read, and so that sort of helps. <laughs> and the other thing is that um, there's a lot of material on the subject. The 19th century is just far enough away that it's completely alien to us, but it's not so far away that you can't get a whole bunch of newspaper archives and many, many photographs and lots and lots of fun things. So it's not as difficult as, let us say, writing about Mesopotamia. It, I, I guess it just sort of came naturally. I'm not, it's not that difficult. And there is, I was able to cozen a trip to London out of this. And uh, we, I went to visit some of the major sites of the novels. And, you know, it is, I think that doing science fiction helps you to do this kind of thing. Oh, and I guess the other fair thing to say was, I wrote a novel in the 2000 and it was titled, darn it, now it'll come back to me. It's titled <laughs> Revise the World. And it, it was about, it was an extension of the novella that I wrote that actually was a finalist for the Hugo and the Nebula. This wow. novel, this novella was about Titus Oates. Do you know Titus Oates? He was the man who was, was went with Scott, Robert Scott's party to discover the South Pole and the Norwegians beat him. So they walked back and he is the one who fame when they're in a blizzard and there was no food whatsoever. And so he's to save the life of the rest of his party. He walked out into the blizzard saying, I'm just stepping out and maybe some time such a British thing to do. Yeah. So I wrote an entire novel about him, which became a space opera, which is how come it was, you know, it was time travel. And, uh, and so what I did for that was not only did I read, everything that I could find about the Scott party. But I believe that I read everything that was ever written by anyone who went to Antarctica in that period. And they all wrote memoirs. You understand every single one of them had journals, they had memoirs, they tell you all about it. And uh, by that time I had gotten my hand well in with Edwardian and Victorian, and I could just slide into the voice. Right. Did you, did you have a relationship with the woman in particularly before you started this? Well, you know, it's a great book. And there was a great uh, dramatization on BBC in the yeah. 90s that was, you know, it was one of those things when they would serialize it and it was like totally gripping. And they made it again into a movie uh, a few years ago that was frankly not very good. It's, it's sort of like one of those classic hardy perennials. It's just going to be around forever. Sounds good. Sounds uh, very interesting. It really is. It's, I mean, it's a lovely read on its own. And when, when it, you know, you, now you can read it knowing that there are 11 more of these things to come, which get wilder and wackier. Book by well, book. you know, what is sad is because I'm deeply and at root a science fiction and fantasy novelist. It took to about book 10 or 11 before <laughs> the fantasy finally creeps up to the surface. Oh, really? uh, we are able to keep it completely beaten back. For 10 volumes but by the time we get to volume 11 which you really should read Chaz it it's begins the one I haven't read yet yeah this is the last one the one you haven't read uh and the it does begin to shift over into fantasy because once you're in southeast asia and trying to placate the cobras to become to win the throne bye then bye. it starts to get you can have magic why yeah. not you know absolutely why well, i generally think you know if you, if it comes to it 
you can have magic. Why not? It just fits into any, <laughs> any environment. You know, I think, I think that's one of those perennial kind of givens, you know, if, if you want magic. I, I once had a long argument with a friend in a car because he propounded that you could have science fiction and you could have, or you could have magic. You couldn't have magic in a science fiction novel. On behalf of Sherry S. Tepper. Yeah. You. yeah. Yeah, he's just wrong. Yeah. He's so fundamentally wrong. It makes no sense at all to say you can have magic in a contemporary novel, but not in one that's set 50 years hence. Yeah. Yeah, because like, the magic just suddenly disappeared. disappeared. Yep. Which, you know, and if you're going to, okay, you could do that. But first, you'd have to write the novel that clearly explained what the magic was yep. and how um, it disappeared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Larry Niven's done that. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> well, but, I think that if, it, you're, if you're dealing with the form, you know, if it's a hard science fiction novel, clearly it's a cheat to suddenly pull magic out of the hat. Yeah. With, and, and, and with these books, I've tried not to depart too far from the form and completely discombobulate the reader. So there's a... There's Things people don't understand, and everybody in Southeast Asia, you know, where they happen to be at the moment, are saying, "Well, but it's magic." You know, everybody knows that the snakes are magic. uh, Everyone who's come over from England says, "Oh, there's got to be a rational explanation," and there always is. But there's that question: Is it was it really magic or not? Now, you briefly mentioned something that we have not talked hugely about. You've been very active with the Book Pew Cafe. Tell people about the Book View Cafe in general. Well, what I think that we've been doing this for like 15 or some years or now, and I cannot remember. Originally, a bunch of writers, you know, there's, if you're a best-selling author, if you're uh, Stephen King or George R. R. Martin, there's not a lot of problems with your backlist. But if you wrote a novel in 1984, and if it didn't make all that much money, they let it go out of print. And then there's sort of like nothing you can do with it. And so the original plan was to get together and cooperatively publish our backlist books. And I, you know, everybody had, you know, a couple of novels that, you know, ran around in paperback for a while and then were not reprinted and essentially are unavailable unless you're willing to go into the used bookstores and dig. Or now you can go onto eBay and search and buy the book used. But there's no, there was no, you had this material. Let's think of a way to monetize it. Okay. And that was just when ebooks were coming up. And so it's rel- it, the idea was it wouldn't be a heavy lift because the book already existed at one point in time. You owned the rights. It had already been, you know, edited and proofread and stuff because it had already been published by, you know, Daw or Bain or whatever. And then you could push it out again and make more money. And this has a, is a noble and laudable goal. I'm sure everyone agrees. And so we went and we did that for a while. And then, of course, from there, to shoving out original material was not terribly difficult. And it's 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 totally a cooperative thing. Um, yeah, we don't we don't go outside the group for any any skill set because we have it all between us. So I mean I'm I'm Brenda's proofreader and converter into English. From American. English yeah. to American. Yeah, and we have we have cover designers, we have we have the blessed people who take our texts and and typeset them and and so on and, and format them and so on and so forth and it all it all happens within the house. Some bits occasionally are fished out, particularly the uh, book covers. We've tinkered with those, and I've done some book covers myself for the group. But m- it frequently it works better 
if you, uh, particularly if you have a specific genre you want addressed, it's sometimes easier to have hire someone outside to actually do the design. We're brilliant, but we're not sometimes we're not actually really, really brilliant. Where do you go uh, looking? Do you go on like Fiverr or, you know, in looking you for- You can things? do that. And I have friends who are artists. You ask, ask friends and then they fish up somebody. I have actually- painted some paintings that from Bookview Cafe's covers. Uh, and then, you know, someone else figures out a way to put the title and the author and that kind of thing on. So you can do that You to get your, uh, to, I can help with the finding of an actual graphic, but to turn it into a cover is sort of a separate art form. Going back to your process in general, because you're clearly have been very prolific. Uh, are you more of a organic writer or do you, outline form and then fill in your lines how do you how do you go about it i you know it's a spectrum and all the way on the far side on one side are the people who are planners and they outline it i had a friend once who outlined the work down to the paragraph level which (laughs) would kill me stone dead i would cut my wrists i'm all the way on the other side of the spectrum far far on the other side i'm a fly by the pants kind of a writer and i do not plan anything I have no idea when I begin where the book's going to end. And I will could uh, almost avow that I have no idea what the next paragraph is going to be when I'm sitting here and looking at the thing. But it's sort of like knitting. You grab the end of the yarn and you pull. And if you keep on going and there's a lot of yarn there, you cast on a knit and you keep on knitting until the yarn's gone. And if the yarn is not gone, we keep on knitting. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, did you have any idea when you started Marion Holcomb that there would be 11 of them? No, I had the <laughs> foggiest idea. In fact, I wrote the first one and had no idea that there was going to be a second. And I think it's fair to say that until fairly later on, I had no idea that uh, there was ever going to be another. I, at one point, the whole series w- was going to end at about like number seven, The Nautilus no. Night. And it actually came to a nice ending point, And I said, I could walk away from this thing right now, except that I didn't. <laughs> and now I think that even now, if you read number 11, it's not entirely clear. It is over. And a case could be made that the number 12 is a nicer number that for a series and that I should write one more that slots in there. And if I do that, and if there's sufficient demand for pirates in the South China Sea, <laughs> I have to fix on a spot within the timeline to wedge in an entire novel about pirates in the South China Sea. Wait. And possibly I could do that. What about Christmas pirates in the South China Sea for December? <laughs> well, I do, the thing is that I haven't begun writing it now. It being, uh, what is it now? It's the middle of September. I cannot get it done by then. <laughs> well, the thing is, this is something that, you know, you've been doing one a month, but that doesn't mean that you have to stop now. I mean, if you do decide to do another one, you know, a few months later or in a couple of years, you want to do another three or four. Um, there you go. It's too bad that it is 11, which is such a, you know, it's a prime um, number. But it's, 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 it's but, it's okay. but if you had 12, you could have a one year thing in a boxed set. Although I don't know if a box set really works on an ebook, but you could, you know, you know, you could. But there, there are 12 because Woman in White is clearly the first. Oh, yeah, it's true. And Paul Wilkie Collins is now public domain, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So you can use you can you can publish him as well. Well, it is. uh, I'm not sure I would do that, but I will say that that, yes, he could be the ghost 12th in there. Uh, Romance novelists frequently do that. You know, there's, you know, your five, you know, 
uh, uh, romance novels about, you know, the five sisters of, of uh, Elizabeth Bennett, let us say, or something. Mm. And then they box them all. And it's a virtual box set. Yes. And you, you buy in on them, you know, you, you throw $20 at it and you get all four volumes or whatever it is. That makes some sense. I should do it. I really should do it. But what happened was after I wrote number 11 and I began writing what could have been number 12, but then I told Jen, which was kind of a mistake, that I said, it's not going to be set in the same time period and it's not going to say have the same characters and it's going to be different in tone and prose style. And she said, then it can't be in the series. What you have done, Brenda, is you have started a new series. So write yes. 11 more in this milieu and then we'll have another series. And I said, I love okay, Jen. Jen. And I'm working on it. Yeah. Well done, Jen. Well done, Jen. I think well, so I'm going to write that. at least a few and all of the, this current lot will be set in the 1950s or 60s. But then at some point, we'll, we'll go back to uh, crinolines and bustle gowns, and maybe we'll wedge another 12th one in there. But it is not going to be anytime really soon. Is this Britain in the 50s, or have we moved to America? Yes, actually, we are in America. I wrote the first one, and it is about, I guess this guy is going to be, it winds up to be either Marion's grandson or his great-grandson. Yeah. I forget which it is. Mm -hmm. But he went through World War II and is trying to recover from it. Right. And so it's uh, it's actually rather cool because it is a novel about disability and trauma and getting better from it. And I don't know if you know Deb Ross, but she yes, cool. uh, she's a, a writer. And I think she lives in uh, Washington State. But nope. she is nope. also nope. does a lot of in Boulder Canyon near us here in California. Oh, does yeah. she? Okay. Well, then, she, then I'm in the, have my compass reversed. But she actually beta read it because I said it's about a, a a guy who went through the war and is trying to recover. And I have we're, we're going because I said you'd be ideal to look at this. And so she has actually read it for me. And that is good because uh, we'll have to see how this works out. I love it for the idea of taking a character and then running with it. I mean, I, I think back of Frazier's Flashman that he did yes. after Tom Brown's school days and yeah. the Flashman novels. I, I have to admit, they're like sliding into an old friend. So. I appreciate this is like Chaz did with his crater schools of taking something that you love. And it's like, this had this character that I feel, you know, deserves their own world. And it's nice to have a whole series about them. Uh, it's like, like the uh, Lord Peter Whimsey novels is another good example. They're more or less chronological. They're more or less follow his life through. But there's, you know, it doesn't, but it, we're not going, you know, a day by day, blow, 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 minute by minute kind of a thing only the interesting bits. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good point. I was I was thinking of people that have written long series with the same characters, but mucked with time, like the Nero Wolf series, that it was always Nero and Archie, but it could be anywhere on any time period. Well, you know, that is, uh, Nero Wolf and Archie are sort of like, that one feature is very like how they do it in the comic books. Mm. Think of Superman and his girlfriend, Lois Lane, his best friend, friend jimmy olsen perry white the editor so he superman has his tiny little core of persons that are actually connected to him and he goes forward in time he's always roughly in his 30s superman never gets white hair and also his this little circle of people stay with him in their relative age positions lois is always a hair younger jimmy is a hair younger yet perry white is always older his parents, Jonathan and Martha Kent, are always older. So there's a sort of like this time stasis bubble that keeps them together in their relationship chronologically. But this whole bubble moves forward through time 
as the comic books progress. And so in the original Superman, Jonathan Kent, his adoptive father, was a World War I veteran. And gradually, as the years went on, that war slipped suddenly. Jonathan Kent fought at Anzio in World War II. (laughs) Fairly recently, he was in the Korean War. And I do not doubt right now he is a Vietnam War veteran. (laughs) <laughs> and in another 10 years, he would have been in Kabul at the fall of, uh, and the fall of Afghanistan. Or desert so shield, you know, he himself, the whole bubble moves yes. forward in time so that at any given moment, the comic books can be very current. And so Nero and Archie were also doing that. They moved forward in time, not aging, but gradually, suddenly it's World War II, you know, but we are not, we're, we're, I'm not 80 years old. I'm still the same age that I ever was. And uh, and no one sort of notices that because they're just sort of sliding forward in their whole social set together. Right. There's a there, there's an extreme example of that kind of literary game in the school stories of Antonia Forrest, because I mean she did she was for a traditional English school story writer she was the very opposite of prolific and she'd bring out a book you know once every 8 or 10 years but she always set them currently um contemporaneously um so like sort of the early ones are in the 50s and then they they're in the 60s and then they're in the 70s but within the context of the stories it's one one school term after another um so it's really peculiar if you read them yeah. All at once, you 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 sort of you're time skipping like a stone bouncing over a lake all the time. But do the do the students stay the same? I they mean, they are they are aging term by term. Okay, but, but all their experiences have been different. Okay. Also, the same thing with James Bond. You know, he mm-hmm. he's not stuck yes. in the 1960s or the 1970s. He now has modern technology and you know whatever it is. But he but he is still James Bond. He hasn't aged out. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of makes it in its own way back to what you were saying. Is it magic or is it just a flexibility of writing? I mean, I love the idea that you've got this character and that you can kind of take it anywhere, anytime. I mean, we have current Benedict Cumberbatch playing a really beautiful Sherlock Holmes that we've all fallen in love with. Why not? Well, you know, Holmes is a really good example of somebody who has become completely iconic. They say that they polled people, you know, even in like you know, Central African jungles and on the uh, taiga in, in, in Mongolia. And uh, Sherlock Holmes is one of the characters that is recognized by everybody worldwide. The other one who everybody recognizes is Mickey Mouse. Oh. And so if you <laughs> so get funny. to that level of icon, then surely you're immortal and you can be anywhere. And, you know, the number of Sherlock Holmes spinoff novels is, must be just about infinite. I would also like to say that James Bond, because he's a secret agent, there's a different man in, in you know, all these different shows. They may actually be Bob Smith, but they when they join, um, they join the Secret <laughs> Service, they are told their name is now James Bond, 007. And, you know, so that's how, kind of how I think of them. He's, he's so not. You're, you're, it's, he's, like, it's like uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts. In, yes. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, exactly. Why don't you be the Dread Pirate Roberts now? I'm about done. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That, that's kind of how I, I think of James Bond. He's uh, a persona rather than a person. Yeah, exactly. I had a question here that was because you are mostly a novelist, as you keep saying over and over again. You still write short stories sometimes. For instance, you have one in one of my favorite short stories, Anthology, How Beer Saved the World. 
<laughs> oh, really? Yes, that one's not. That was a fun one, wasn't it? Yes, I mean, it was hilarious. What? How do you approach a short story differently than you do a novel? It helps a lot if someone says to me, "Brando, we need a short story about beer. Get it in gear," yeah. because uh, I don't usually sit down and say, "Oh, I'm going to write a short story." But if someone turns to me and says, "And someone actually did this," you—I don't know, Chaz, if you know Mike Ventrella, but he is a short story. He edits short story yeah. collections. And at some point in the past, he got the idea that there should be an alternate Beatles collection. I, I like the Beatles, but I didn't think I needed to write about them. And so I paid no attention when he put out a market listing, you know, I'm, I'm looking for short stories about alternate Beatles. And then I don't know exactly what happened, but I think he was flooded with short stories in which John Lennon did not die. Yeah. And then <laughs> finally he got fed up with it. And he said, Brenda, you have to do something. And I said, well, you've already had the one about John Lennon not dying. And he said, I am knee deep in them. And so I think that I this must have been on the fly. I said, have you had the one about George Harrison saving the world with centric sex? And he said, that one I have not had. You had better write it. And then I, was yes. <laughs> I love it. I, I love it. <laughs> Well, what was frightening about that one was I sort of had the idea on the fly. But when I dug into George Harrison's history, luckily the man is dead. It all dovetailed perfectly with his life and his known, you know, character interests. And uh, so it was clearly meant to be. And so I just did it. <laughs> what are you working on now? Well, I'm writing this uh, sort of post-World War. The reason I got into post-World War II was I knew if I kept on writing Victorian novels i would be complete my well of english would be completely polluted and i would forever be writing in orotund sentences with many dependent clauses and lots of polysyllabic words and i couldn't hack it so i had to get out and the way to do this was to write something but it just try to switch over to a very earnest hemingway style we were going to do short declarative sentences with not a lot of adjectives or adverbs and it was going to be a uh, uh, we weren't going to describe all the angst. It was just all going to be like sort of in this uh, over to one side, uh, uh, not telling you about it, but you could tell that he was be suffering because he was drinking a lot. That kind of a book. I love it. I love I it. I don't know if it's going to work out or not, but we will see. And we're, we're, we're slopping around on this right now. Uh, Jen said, uh, describe the plot of the second one to Jen. And she said, Brenda, it is clearly a romance novel. And if it is a romance novel, you need, and she produced yeah. this list of things that it had to have. You know that romance novels have their own structure and canon. It's yeah. something like kabuki theater at this point. Every You have to do certain things at a certain time in a certain way. And there's lists about this. And, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm really stubborn and cynical about this. I don't think you have to do it at all. Well, I didn't. Uh, I don't have to do it, but the, the sort of the challenge of saying that you, that you certain beats have to be met, you have to have this certain kind of crisis. Apparently, romance writers spend all their time talking about this, but in a proper romance novel, the characters have to earn their happily ever after that they achieve at the end of the book. And you can't just like have the deus ex machina drop it on you. You have to suffer and earn it. And uh, And so, fine, we're working on that, which sounds you know reasonable to me and so it's sort of a challenge to write it to meet this canon and i'm not certain it's actually going to work out i'm watching it get it the bit between its teeth and we're going to turn left and completely gallop across this yeah. but it's fine I, it, if it does that it'll be very interesting given given your 
history with novels and your avowed insistence on just sitting down and writing and not knowing where the thing is going. I cannot see you working well within the strictures that... Um, formula. Formula. The, 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 especially formula romance would seek to impose on you. And I don't think you should. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I did a, I've experimented with outlines imposed upon me by other people. Yeah. And sometimes it, mostly it does not work well, but yeah. it has, a, it has, I've also been informed that you could actually be more productive if you had an work with an outline because it saves you from wandering into the dead ends where the whole thing grinds to a halt and you have to ditch 40,000 words because it is clearly going nowhere. And I am not certain that they are not right. And so I'm, you know, sort of, I'm sort of flirting with it. But in a little while, I trust the muse will take charge of the thing and then we'll just head off into the left field. Yes. I have actually had really, really good luck with that. And you can sort of see the moment if you have read How Like a God, Jeannie. If you've read How Like a God, you can sort of put your finger on the moment when the book turns left and starts heading for the tall timber. And it is, uh, (laughs) that's the best time for a writer when the book says, I am not being what you think it's going to be. We are going way the hell and gone. And and I think honestly, by going to hell and gone, that's how you got sequels out of it too. Because at the beginning I was thinking, ah, this is going to be a one, a standalone book. Because when I first read it, you know, years ago, I'm like, and it stands alone. And then I got to the end, I'm like, it doesn't. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know what is annoying about those? There's there's two books. There's uh, How Like a God and there's The Doors of Death and Life. And yeah. I should tell you that I've written two other sequels to that. The mm. tour would not play ball. And uh, I still have them. And I, I keep on saying every year, I should shove these out through Bookview Cafe. Yes. And one of these years, I will. What? Can you get, can you get them? Mail them to me and I'll PayPal you or something. Because uh, girls have uh, I Well, it would help if they were in better shape. <laughs> but in uh, the next one, because the whole issue of immortality is kind of irritating for uh, Eddie. So he joins a circus. And I've always wanted to write about circuses. And he does the whole thing, you know, the uh, elephants and the lions and stuff. And he plays the calliope for the circus horses. And then I wrote another one for him because you remember how they're, the theater is really dead. It's the Simon and Garfunkel song. You know, the theater is really dead. So I decided I really would kill the theater. It's dead. Live theater is dead. But Eddie is going to bring it back. And they were going to write a musical. And they, I went and I did like, I went over to do some world building or something. And I came back and the character said, well, we decided to stage a musical and it'll, it's going to be Oklahoma. I said, Uh you can't do that. You know, I'd have to get the rights from the Hammerstein organization and they would never, never let me do that. And, and then the character said, well, fine, you have to think of something. And I couldn't think of the th- simplest way to address the issue that I could think of was to write the book and the lyrics for a musical. Yes. I couldn't compose the score, but I don't need the score. This is a novel. Yes. So I was able, so I composed the book and the lyrics, the dummy lyrics for a musical for them to stage. And they did. And then, and, oh, and by the way, the whole novel, the whole plot of the novel is grinding along while they're doing this. Yes. And then what I really needed to do at that moment was to find someone to write the score. But Stephen ah. Sondheim wasn't available. Ah, oh, that's too bad. I'll have a word. Yeah, with total you. bummer. 
Absolutely. I, I now have to say, so Brenda, short story novelist, libretticist, um, thank you so much for coming on our show today. That's amazing. And I want to go listen to your musical now. <laughs> well, I, I need someone to write the score. I really do. But it was, it was, it was a ducky concept for a musical and I'm sure it's stageable, but I need someone to write the score. And then of course, someone has to produce it. That would be very complex. That, that is. But we will put links to all of these things that we've mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email. Brenda, if somebody has questions for you on follow-up on this, uh, can they go ahead and reach out to you? I have a web page, and there's an email link to it from there. It's brendaclough.net. We will put it on our website. Great. Thank you so much for having us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yes, it's been great talking to you. It really has. You are always a delight. And out there, you've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking the Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. Our podcast sponsor is Eternally Jackal Designs. And hey, thanks for listening.